Amen. Um, <clears throat> well, I hope you're ready for a, um, a different kind of service in some ways this morning. I think they've prepared us for that, and um, it's very exciting to be able to jump back into First Peter once again. I will, I will stop and comment um, in a moment about serving um, here at the church again. I'm going to hold off on that till there's a, a certain moment in the sermon when that works really well. We Last week, we talked about who Peter was, the author of this book, um, and over the next few weeks, I'll be introducing you to various types of resources. Obviously, my hope um, is that you're not just counting on Sunday morning to be your time of Bible study, but that you're reading and studying and memorizing and, and uh, God's Word throughout the week. And, um, and so we'll look at uh, probably a scene, if, if, if we'll be able to do it, a scene from The Chosen as a resource to you guys to encourage you in your study. Um, we'll also we'll be looking at some point probably at the Bible Project's summary of 1 Peter, um, which is other great resource. There's so many great things out there. There's really no excuse in this day and time to not be able to dig deeply into God's Word, even in other times other than Sunday morning. Um, so I hope you'll be doing that. Um, here we're dealing with a letter that the Apostle Paul, I mean the Apostle Peter wrote, probably shortly before his execution. Um, we get two letters from him, kind of back to back, probably somewhere around A.D. 64. Um, so my guess is, best guess is Peter was in his early 50s, maybe late 40s. Um, at the time that he wrote that, so right about my age, um, and probably in Rome, which he calls Babylon in this letter. Um, we'll, we'll explain that when we get there. Um, First Peter, like the Gospel of John, which we studied, gives us its purpose. It actually, within its own text, tells us why it was written. We find this in First Peter 5, verse 12. Um, uh, Wayne Broderick, um, who taught on First Peter a few years ago, and many others, by the way, note this. Um, verse 12 says, By Silvanus, I'll reference Silvanus in a moment, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the, this is the basic message. And when we go through the, the New Testament especially, we find a handful of very important verbs um, that, that really kind of exemplify the Christian life. They're numerous. I, I'm going to just mention a couple of them. One is the word believe. We see it all through. It's the word we saw it in John. It's the word faith, but it's in action form. It's in verb form. We don't have a word like that, so we say believe. We don't have I faith in Jesus Christ, even though in the Greek that's how it would be. Um, I faith in Jesus Christ. I am convinced. I am persuaded. I believe on Jesus Christ and on his message and in his gospel. That would be one verb we see a lot. Another one is the word walk, um, in the Greek peripateo, meaning to, to live this out, that it's, it's, it's part of your identity being lived out, to, to walk this way. And, and that's really a verb that we see all through the New Testament. And another one is the one we just saw here, which is the word stand. We see this, think about back in 1 Corinthians 15 and 16, where you have the Apostle Paul who has declared the resurrection of Jesus and then tells us to be steadfast in that to stand firmly in that. And we keep reading down into 1 Corinthians 16 when he actually says, watch, these are military terms, watch, stand firm in your faith. This is the idea that's here as well. And the Apostle Peter, what he's going to do is he's going to, he's written this letter so that the people who read it can stand. The, the image we see in Ephesians 6, for example, in Ephesians 6 when we have the, the word walk over and over and over again through the entire book of Ephesians, 
until the last half of the last chapter, and the verb radically changes from walk to stand. The image is of a battlefield, and there are bodies laying everywhere, and only some are still standing. And those who are properly armed and armored are the ones who can still be standing at the end of the battle. This is what the Apostle Peter is telling us, declaring, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm, and we could say stand, key, firm, important. In it is key. Stand firm in what? That's going to matter for us. What are we standing firm in? He doesn't want us standing firm in a false version of God's grace. He doesn't want us standing firm in some misunderstanding. He wants us standing firm in the true grace of God. And we need to be able to do that. Standing in the true grace of God, by the way, is not always comfortable. It doesn't always feel good. That's not part of this. Standing firm in God's grace can be very painful. In fact, very soon afterwards, Peter standing firm in God's grace will be executed. It's not safe to stand firm in God's grace if you mean physical safety. It can get you killed to do so. That's not what's being promised here. What's being promised is that we, have, that we can stand firmly in His grace and we can submit so much of what the Christian life is. Those of Christians, us who have been Christians long know this, this constant message. This is a big part of what it means to be a Christian is that I choose God's way over my way. I preference God's preferences over my own preferences. I take God's opinions over my opinions. I take His standards over mine. This is something that, that it means to be a Christian. That I don't get to define myself. I don't get to define my calling. I don't get to define my task. I don't even get to choose my name. And that's how Peter's book letter begins. Peter, a name he did not choose for himself, an apostle, a title and identity he did not choose for himself. These are both gifted to him by God. And they got him killed. So to understand, this is, this is what it means. And he's going to write this letter to people who are suffering and facing persecution and challenges. Now, those of you who are a little more digging, like digging into the scholarly side of things, 1 Peter is apparently written very differently than 2 Peter. People have even argued they weren't written by the same person. And I would say they weren't. Um, I believe they were dictated by the same person. They are both the letters of Peter. But the, the first one, 1 Peter, was probably written by this man, Silvanus. So that Silvanus was probably his scribe, which is what you would do. You're a prisoner, and you don't, you, your Greek is not awesome, and you want to send out a letter to this mass population, and you don't want it to read like, I mean, like an East Texan wrote it, right? You don't want it to read like a Galilean wrote it. The Galileans were kind of the, the backcountry people, and so they said, hey, you know, he's going to bring someone in. And he's going to dictate it, and they're going to write it in proper Greek. Then at some point after Sylvanus has left, maybe when Peter realizes, I am now merely days from being killed, he then probably pins himself Second Peter, which is not as refined. That makes sense. Now, for those of you who have been a part of South Spring or First Baptist for a while, you'll appreciate this. For those of you who haven't, um, you may miss this. But we have actually a rare, um, in fact, we, we have a special thing we have one of the very few rare photos of the Apostle Peter and his wife not long before his death, and I think we have a picture here. Um, that's actually, for those of you who don't know, that's Newt and Lori Farah. They're uh, kind of founding members of the church, and they were, they were dressed up to be in The Chosen as extras. I didn't get John's, I don't have John's picture. I could have shown John's. Uh, he was there as well. Um, uh, so that's not actually a photo of Peter. Don't, don't tell anybody that that happened today, so you'll get teased. Um, uh, well, here's what we do know. We mentioned that Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, and of course, the book is covered in the themes of Jesus' teaching. No surprise. 
um, especially those that have to do with the, the covenant, the grafting in of Christians into the covenant of the Jews. We will unpack that quite a bit during this letter. Peter's understanding of his own identity, which is so clear, is then communicated to the readers of this letter. He wants us to find our identity in Christ the way he finds his identity in Christ. This is who the letter is from. Who is the letter to? And where, how does the letter go? What is this letter like? So letters are meant to be read in one sitting. Even with short books like 1 Peter, rarely do modern Christians sit and read a book from beginning to ending. And the letters were all meant to be read that way. That this is a letter meant to be read from beginning to ending. It's meant to be heard from beginning to ending. So I've invited some friends to come and help us out with that. So if you guys can come on up. I'm going to recommend that if you're taking notes or whatever, you, obviously you can continue doing that, but I'm going to recommend that, that what you do is you let this immersive experience, um, that you, just, you, you let the God's Word here just kind of wash over you. And you guys start when you're ready. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith in God are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may obtain the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, or the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs of you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you shall suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that you are those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And in all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not on shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, now we've covered the whole book. There you go. <clears throat> um, thank you very much, guys. Those are um, um, some of the students from the Forge program, from Pine Coast Forge program. And uh, one of the th many things that they're challenged to do during their time is to memorize the entirety of the book of 1 Peter, which we chose the very first year of the program because of how much meat there is in 1 Peter and how almost no matter what you face as a Christian, there's a passage in 1 Peter that applies to that moment, whatever that moment is. So I encourage you as well to be reading it and studying it. Some of you remember that when we started the book of John, um, and when we finished the book of John, two, a little over two years later, there was a young lady who came and quoted the entirety of the book of John. Um, but that takes two hours. And so we couldn't do that on a Sunday morning. And so they were able to get it squeezed down into about 15 minutes and, uh, and so we could really celebrate God's Word being spoken over us. And that was, by the way, in case you were, a few of you probably cut your eyes back to the screens at the back just to make sure um, there, were, there were no words back there on the back. That's, that's them memorizing that. And I'll tell you, it's a tough book to memorize. There are especially sections at the end of book, chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, that, that just they sound exactly like everything else in the letter. And so you get them confused. They, they did a great job. So, um, and, and by the way, I want to communicate extra appreciation to them. For those of you who may not know, um, they've been serving with us this, this year of this program for them, which is wrapping up this week. Um, and so they have actually helped us out in some ways when we've had gaps, when we've needed people, whether it's greeting people or working in children's ministry or whatever, they've often stepped into the gap. We will not have that um, for the next few months. It is that much even more um, important for us to be stepping up and serving. We have many places, opportunities to serve, including in the kitchen on Sunday morning and then, Lord willing, on Wednesday nights. Starting in the fall, we'll be back to doing Wednesday night stuff. We continue to realize that there's things that we, uh, that we have canceled that we forgot we canceled. Like, for example, we used to have a prayer corner um, over there for after the service, and we'll need that to start back up. There's a lot of those type of things that, that we need, and we need people to step in. Of course, that applies to children's ministry because we need about as many people working in children's ministry again as we have now. 
And so uh, we're at about 150 now. We need about 300. And so make sure that you are looking and seeing how God would use you in the ministry of South Spring. Um, And we're so grateful to the Forge, honestly, and to them for doing that for us and all the other things they've been doing. Back into 1 Peter. Here we are, 1 Peter 1.1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as you just heard this, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And you don't know what any of those are. Um, it's, it's a, we, we read through stuff like that, and we just slide right over it, knowing it has no importance. Um, but actually, actually, it could matter to us. So, for example, I want you to know where these places are. I consider one of my main jobs to bring God's Word to life to you, to make it real to you. Um, J- uh, Jared Schuler, the director of the Forge, and I were laughing the other day about getting to visit. They're about to take a trip to Turkey and uh, some of our staff are going, and there's a place when you're in Corinth, they don't get to go to Corinth this year for some reason, but there's a place when you're in Corinth where there's a, a plaque literally carved into the stone referencing the very same person who is referenced in the letter of 1 Corinthians as being a significant member in the community, and then you find a stone with his name backing exactly that. And Jared and I talked about how it reveals the truth. We stand with somebody shows us there, and they stand it, and they read it, and it reveals the fact that so many of us intuitively think of the Bible as actually a gathering of fairy tales. Because we're like, oh my gosh, it really happened! As if, like, like that's, that shouldn't be such a shock to us. And yet, it still is to us sometimes when we look at something like this and realize these are real places. The letter that Peter is sending, he's sending it to real Christians in real places. So he's, he's over here in Rome... This is Israel over here, and he's writing this to what we would now call modern-day Turkey for the most part. You have Pontus, um, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, right there, and Bithynia. And so those are, those are the places that he's writing to, the Christians who are living scattered in this, these places. It overlaps the next picture. Did we get it working, I think? Um, so this is the modern-day, so it's, it's this area right here, Turkey and Georgia, uh, you can't see, Georgia's the state right up here, or the city, the uh, country right up here, um, not the state Georgia, the, the country Georgia up here by the Black Sea. And that's where the modern day, and it's weird to us to think, we think of this as the center, kind of the hub of Islam, but early, it was the, it was the foundation stone of early Christianity. This is where the Christian church grew, was in these places. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. I stopped. Um, I'm asked. I'm about to show you something cool about Cappadocia in a minute. And I stopped um, Bob Livesay in the first service and said, "What do you know about Cappadocia?" And he was like, "Just that it sounds like a drink I would order at a coffee shop. That's all I know about it." Um, he's kidding. But that's the. I was a big shots orbiting in Cappadocia. I'm going to try it. Just see what they give me. Um, this was the early hub. This region. It's a beautiful region of the world. It's a beautiful part of the planet. Um, they have all types. It's a big country, kind of like America. They have everything. It's kind of all the different ecosystems are there. They have beautiful coastlines that they're very famous for. Um, in Turkey, they also have uh, hot springs that they're famous for in Turkey. Um, and they have all different types of ecosystems there that, that are really beautiful. And this is, the, this is where the church was being built in these places. In my research, I discovered another incredible thing that's in Turkey. This is one of the cool things about my job, is I get to, I get to dig for things like this. So <clears throat> the, in Turkey, they have these, in the area of Cappadocia, they have these things called fairy chimneys. So the fairy chimneys are when you have a, a harder stone at the top, 
and, and softer stone underneath, and the rain and the weather eventually kind of creates these cone shapes, these tower shapes that look kind of like, um, you know, gnomes' hats or something. And so, and so they're really cool. Well, as I'm studying that and looking at how cool that is, I then discover that at some point in history, people carved them into houses. That's how big these are. So these, were, these shapes, these cones were then carved. People carved houses out of them. And I think we have another example of that um, in Cappadocia. I mean, how cool is that? Now there are hotels and stuff built into them. You can actually go stay there. You know, I don't have a bucket list, but I may have just invented one for myself. Um, it's very cool. And so as I'm continuing to study and thinking, who did this? What ancient peoples did this? And then I discovered that there's not just houses and all the kind of things, but there's even churches carved into these. And so I continued to do the research, and here's what I found out. Listen to this. This is um, one of the websites teaching through them. During the Roman period, you hear that? This is when Peter's writing. During the Roman period, persecuted Christians fled to Cappadocia and soon came to the realization that the materials of these construct, of these um, fairy chimneys, how they were made were useful, malleable materials. The inhabitants set about building a network of handmade caves, living quarters, churches, stables, and storehouses all dug into the soft rock. Today, there are still obvious signs of past lives within the honeycombed network of built, hand-built rock. The stables with handles used to tether animals, walls with holes meant for air circulation, blackened walls that were once kitchens. Underground cities had to be built due to the possibility of a hostile force discovering their refuge. They're in hiding. Almost ten stories deep and connected by narrow passages, these subterranean cities could hide as many as 10,000 people at a time. Ventilation shafts were disguised as wells. Large rolling stone doors were put in place to protect entrances. Who carved these? God's elect exiles carved these. I imagined, as I, began, as I was looking into it, I was imagining people sitting in here in a church like this with a stone rolled over to hide the light around a fire, and they're the first people reading 1 Peter, the letter we just heard read out loud to us. This is the connection, I believe, that one of the things 1 Peter is meant to do is to connect us to God's people all the way through. It's one of the great powers of this book is to unite us to the early Christians and to the forerunners even before them. We could get on <clears throat> one side or the other of the debate as to whether or not the, the first sentence there is meant to be read, God's elect, who happen to be exiles, or those who have been elected by God to be exiles, but I don't see the point. One, the Greek's unclear. It's impossible to know which one is meant. The ESV makes it unclear in the way it's written to make it easier for us to just uh, try to figure it out on our own. But the truth is, either way, it's God's doing. These are either, they are God's elect who are in exile, and they are the ones that God has chosen to be in exile. I, I, I expect I want to unpack, though, more in depth, and that we will see over and over again. One of the most interesting and controversial things about this letter is that Peter begins right off the bat to use the Jewish nation language for his audience. He starts talking right from the beginning. He calls them chosen. He refers to them as exiles. He references them being in the dispersion. Now, the good news is we just studied Daniel. 
And so we know these are all references for God's people, for the Jewish people, that they were into the dispersion, they were spread all over, they were exiles, they were God's chosen people. This might naturally lead someone to assume that Peter is writing to Jewish Christians around the world, but he quite clearly isn't. He's not. The, the letter will say that over and over again, it will actually, the, this is one of the main letters that actually is clearly written to Gentile believers like this. But they're called elect exiles, chosen to be this by the foreknowledge of God the Father, and set apart. Again, Jewish language, the sacred. They are sacred because of the sacred work of the Holy Spirit, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And they have a job. The job is obedience to Jesus and, more Jewish language, the sprinkling of His blood. We will unpack that more starting next week, Lord willing. Here we have the chosen exiles. This is language for the Jewish people, but it's targeted at Gentile Christians. And I think there's a reason why. And we're going to see this all through the book. I think it's because Peter wants them to know they're all in the same boat. Which again, make that, even that language would make sense for Peter to say. Peter wants them to know they're all in the same family. They're all in the same condition. They are all wanderers, persecuted, homeless, and without a nation. Fundamentally, it would not be possible to create a Christian nation. By definition, what Christianity is could not be encapsulated in political boundaries. That's not, that would not be possible. You could have a nation, like ours was, that would be founded on the concepts and the ideas by people who were Christians and who wanted to found a nation that was friendly to those ideas, that deferred to those ideas that were the Judeo-Christian mindset. Absolutely, it would happen. And we're going to see how, of course, eventually that would always fall apart when humans do it. If for no other reason, because even when you think about even our founders, for all of their brilliance, as they proclaimed... Hey, look, we're going to create a nation that is based on a divine principle of freedom. The freedom to live life. The, the God-given freedoms. The God-given freedoms that every human shares because they come from God. Right? That's what it says. That they are unalienable because they come from the divine. God is the one who creates these rights. They declare that. And then immediately set about deciding which humans get those rights and which ones don't. This, was, this is what happens when humans, even seeking to create it this way, even with the right mindset, the, the instantaneously you will discover the snake in the garden. The fox is in the field. The, the taint of humanity, even when we do our best to follow God's word, it is from the very beginning always going to be tainted. Welcome to the human race. That's why Peter doesn't say... Now I have taught you about God's true grace, therefore trust in your politicians. Therefore stand in your constitution. Therefore stand according to your, your uh, patriotism, which may or may not be right or wrong, but that's not where he's going to send us to stand, is it? He's going to say, I've written this to you so you would know God's grace. This is a powerful picture for him to use this type of language. When he uses this Jewish language, targeted Jewish language, for the people, because in the end, in Christianity, he can use this type of language that is specifically for the Jewish people. He can use it for them, and then he could use it for everybody else, because now, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, he uses the word Gentile, 
which would describe most of the people he's writing to, but he now uses that word to mean those who aren't in the family of God. And he uses this Jewish language to apply to everyone who is in the family of God, and that includes the Gentile believers. It's now for all believers. Why is that possible? Here's why. Because God's gospel, His true grace, transcends and supersedes things like ethnic identity. It is bigger than that. It's grander than that. By, by, by ethnic standards, you're a Jew or a Gentile, fine. However, what matters is this. You are part of God's chosen people. That now defines you. The rest of it may still be true, fascinating as it is, but it is always subordinate to our identity in the grace of Christ. And that's why he can use this language this way. That's why it's powerful for him to do so. He is uniting people who were not united. I, I picture now people sitting around, Jews, Jewish converts and Christian converts, sitting around in a cave in Cappadocia, and he uses some of this language, and he goes, you're like exiles. And these Greek Christians going, hey, what does he mean by exiles? And the Jewish Christians going, yeah, I got a story to tell you. They're having to explain this to one another. He's creating conversations between these populations who now are united in Christ. It's such a great picture. Everything can be unified in him. That's the power of his gospel, one of the many powers of his gospel. Our hope is to be found in him. See, here's the deal. God could choose us to be persecuted too. We could be chosen for exile. We could be chosen to be unloved or unwanted or disregarded or forced out of job opportunities, or, or persecuted in some way or another, for no other reason than because of our faith. God may choose that for us as well. What's going to unite us if that happens? What's going to unite us as the world works very hard to drive wedges between us? We say, no, no, we have this true grace of God, and it unites us. Because we, also, we are united in the fact that all of us are sojourners. We're all wanderers. We're all strangers. We're all exiles. Hebrews 11.13, which we've looked at Hebrews 11 before, Hebrews 11.13 references this same word, talking about those who have lived out their faith in the past and in being challenged in the present. Those who all, those, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That was then all the way back to Adam and Eve, and it's now. If we do face isolation and exile and even persecution, I think it will feel very lonely. I think it'll be a strange feeling if we face that. So what brings us together? God wants us to know. Peter wants us to know. We're not alone. We're not in isolation. Who were, all the, who were other God-following exiles? Well, just read through the Bible. Adam and Eve were. Abraham was. Moses was. The Hebrew people were led by a pillar of fire and a tower of smoke. They were exiled under Assyria. They were exiled under Babylon. They were persecuted by the Greeks. They were persecuted by the Romans. And so much more in between those. And I think Peter is saying, you, my audience, which includes us, I think, we're like the Jews of old who have to gird up our loins, who are exiled but set free by the Passover lamb. And we are now free to wander. We are the part of the new covenant, the new temple, and the new priests. 
So my starting theory is that Peter is using the legacy of these Jewish forerunners to unite his readers in this truth. You are now either part of God's people or you're a Gentile. That's not changed. But who gets to call themselves God's people? That has changed. And there's an amazing, powerful thing that happens. And what that would have been like for, for Peter to have to accept is something kind of beyond our thinking. They suffered persecution and isolation in a way to create a sense of unification for those who face the challenges in the name of Yahweh and encourage these believers to face persecution with a similar faithfulness that their Jewish forerunners did. That we would face it with the same thing. That when we face persecution or challenges or whatever, we would look at this and say, we're not first and we're not alone. I think that's one of the main messages and why he unites these ideas is those two. That we aren't first, others have done it before us, and a lot of times working with a lot less, and we're not alone. In fact, Peter's going to say that what we face is common. It's essentially universal to all believers everywhere, so that we can experience this together. So let's accept this gift that God's going to tell us. If you will, stand with me and let's pray.